Welcome to Prepping for the Studio. If you're a musician or musical artist that wants to learn more about what goes on, how to prepare, or how to make the most out of your studio session, you're in the right place. Episode 1. Roy and Brian introduce themselves and the podcast and give you the 50,000-foot view of the record-making process. Thanks for joining. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Prepping for the Studio. The first episode of this podcast. This is the first podcast that I've ever done. My name is Roy Silverstein. I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Brian Schubel. Hello. Hi, Brian. Um, and yes, you've come across a uh, another podcast, but this one, if you're into recording, is going to be a little bit different because this is actually a podcast for musicians, um, not really for engineers, although perhaps engineers will find something of value in it. But prepping for the studio is really about musicians who are new to the studio and want to learn what goes on in the studio, how to prepare, how to uh, not waste your money, not waste your time, and just feel confident when you come in to record something. And there could be a lot of you out there. We're going to find out. But my name is Roy Silverstein, as I mentioned already. And I, I've been doing this for recording 25 plus years or so. Brian's actually been doing it longer how long have you been doing this? i started around 81 <laughs> okay we can do the math in our heads maybe maybe not yeah i got into recording as a teenager i grew up in chicago area you actually grew up in illinois also, peoria right? yeah peoria illinois wow that's funny we both ended up in san diego eventually yeah but yeah i got into recording as a teenager just playing in bands with my friends in the basement because we have basements in chicago um and uh, I wanted to figure out how to record ourselves because we literally had nothing but a little dictaphone thing that my stepdad used. He was a psycho psychiatrist. Um, and it sounded terrible. Um, so luckily the drummer's dad was a musician, actually quite a good musician named Howard Levy. You may know he's an incredible harmonica player. Um, so he had a four track that he wasn't using and he let me use it and I, just kind of taught myself how to use it and got obsessed with it. Um, and I was off for the races, but I ended up um, studying electrical engineering uh, at University of Miami. There's a program there they call audio engineering. And there's been some, and you know, well-known engineers that have come out of that program or the sister program that was called music engineering. See, my program was in the, the college of engineering and it was electrical engineering with a emphasis in audio. And then the music engineering was in the school of music. And that was like, you had to be a musician. Like I am a musician, but you know, you had to have an instrument and you had to do all the recitals and all that stuff because <laughs> it was in the school of music. Um, and uh, I didn't do that because I, I was an okay musician, but not like, I hated doing all the recitals and all that stuff. <laughs> oh man, I'm blaming you. Yeah. So I went to the college of engineering one. But the music engineering one like had guys like Andrew Sheps pass through that program, Joe Barisi, some pretty well-known engineers actually. Um, but anyways, I did that program, um, came out to San Diego to work at Qualcomm, which is like a big company that does cell phone chips. Um, 
and this was 2001 when I came out to San Diego. Um, and I was, you know, basically working on audio related cell phone stuff, but then on the side recording and mixing and all that, and just kept doing that until 2010 when I bought a property and decided I was going to build like a proper studio. And, um, that's where we are now. We're at rarefied recording, which is my studio. Um, and so, yeah, I did this build out of this studio with this real studio designer and everything. And then, um, took three years to do, but after that, um, took, you know, a couple of years of kind of doing the Qualcomm thing and the studio thing. And then the studio thing kind of taking off and, 2015 i made a little switch and just went full-time <laughs> on the studio <laughs> which awesome. was nerve-wracking but here i still am going strong with the engineering and the mixing and all that and i wrote this ebook which is kind of the genesis of this podcast so uh if you go to preppingforthestudio.com you can find the ebook uh, to download and it's the musician's guide to the recording studio um basically exactly what we're going to be talking about here, but see the ebook's kind of long. The ebook is like 65 pages and goes on and on. And probably a lot of you aren't going to really want to read it. So that's sort of the reason for the podcast is we're going to break it down into sections and little chunks and nuggets that you can digest in an hour or so. It's good details in the book. Yes. Now, Brian, you got to tell us a little bit about yourself because you've been doing this a lot longer than I, and you, you kind of provide some extra clout to this whole thing. Well, didn't you have a house before this, though, that you were doing I recording? Did. Well, yeah, I, I was renting a house in San Diego, and it was, I called it the Habitat. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, that was like, you know, I had a setup there for recording, and I recorded some bands and my own projects um, and had house shows. Oh, cool. Yeah, like kind of twice a month. Would you record the show? At first I did record the shows, yeah. yeah. I was recording the shows, but then after a while I was like, okay, this is a lot of work. Um, I don't think I have time to <laughs> <laughs> set up these shows, do the live sound and record the shows and then do the post-production to like make it, you know, something listenable. So I kind of gave up the recording of the shows part after a few. But, um, but I did record a lot of, you know, records there. Mm. And that was a good seminal time for me, you know, part of my learning how to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Although some of that started even when I was a teenager with yeah. a four track. Um, but yeah, then I, yeah, then I bought this house in North Park in a part of San Diego and built this whole studio and been doing rarefied recording. Yeah. Since yeah. 2015. And I met you cause you had moved down to San Diego and you were looking for a place and you said, you I knew there has, there has to be a place that's yeah. better than these other options I'm finding. And yeah. Yeah. But, but, but tell us, tell us about yeah, yourself. I, what, where well, did you start? I, yeah. I mean, well, I moved down to North Park down here in San Diego and I just was saying to myself, you know, cause in LA, everybody's got a studio and every block, you know, there's probably two or three yeah. studios. And you had so, been in LA for years, right? Yeah. Well, I went to LA in 79 as, as a kid just wanting to get out of pure illinois one as of note i was born in 79. <laughs> is that right <laughs> yes oh my gosh that's crazy so you had just gotten to la and i was just becoming a person not knowing what i wanted to do at all and then i discovered studios after i was laid off a couple times at the job i had so i could go during go to school during the day mm -hmm. but wasn't really applying myself to school 
And I got a job at Cherokee Studio where I started at the ground. We're running for burgers, and eventually that turned into being an assistant engineer in their studios and then becoming an engineer and just uh, coming up through that process, which is very different than going to a school. Well, maybe not very different, but I had to learn everything kind of hands-on. And mm-hmm. Had you messed around with audio before? You Well, when I was a kid, it's funny. I-, I would tinker with tape recorders, and I would record stuff off the radio. I remember there was a radio show when I was really little about the Beatles, uh-huh. and it went it was four days straight and I had a reel-to-reel recorder and I remember recording that and I play it back and I put it through different, you know, I was just tinkering. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just loved the electronics. I'd take things apart and look at the stuff and Mm. never really knew what I was doing, but it was really intriguing to me. So it kind of made sense once I saw a control room at a studio, I was like, that, that's it. I mean, you knew that was where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Plus I love music. I mean, music was, always around and yeah. i was taking guitar lessons um and in college i had no clue what i wanted to do so i took classical guitar for a while and tennis <laughs> those were the two things that i and now you play pickleball and now i play pickleball yeah <laughs> still play tennis oh good but uh so yeah so i've been doing it for a long time and i worked on some really big records and i worked two different studios cherokee i was there for six years mm-hmm. working with some incredible producers like mike chapman and ray thomas baker and guys that are really you yeah. know in their day were making incredible records and sounding records and during that time it was all on tape so things were progressing like uh, technically as well you know, digital wasn't really a big thing other mm-hmm. than, you know, like a DDL, even tight DDL was the big deal we had or the 910 harmonizer. Yeah, the early days of what was possible there with digital yeah. processors, I guess, and yeah. before Pro Tools or anything. Yeah, so it was all pretty much analog. And what were some of the artists that you got to work with? Uh, in the early days, I'm. There were so many. I mean, that first record I ever got a rec- credit on was uh, a punk band in L.A. called X. Oh, yeah. And um, that was exciting. And that was with Ray Manzarek was the producer from The Doors. Oh, cool. So, uh, you know, I was thrown in. I had no idea what I was doing. I was doing switches on mixes and not knowing what a chorus was. I mean, I, wow. I was really green. Yeah. And I worked with a lot of producers, uh, you know, and some good bands, Tina Turner. and Okay uh rod stewart and yeah. white snake and at this one studio was kind of your rock studio motley crew was there and wow devo but and then I, after working there for six years i went to a studio called AM, which was a whole nother level that was where jimmy Iovine and shelly akis came in and built studios and wow they took over the rooms herb alpert who was the owner wanted to really bring the studio up but he also wanted to bring the studio up where it was for artists it wasn't for he was an artist exactly and he wanted to keep it family-like and friendly and Mm -hmm. and it was and so i got brought over there by shelly um he was doing he was working on tom petty at cherokee and uh heard about me i was like this head of the engineering staff i was kind of like oh you worked your way up i worked my way up yeah and then the, the owners made me kind of like I would interview guys for when we needed a new engineer. Mm-hmm. And I worked with Mike Chapman, who was like the big guy there because he was doing pretty big records at the time and I was his guy for four years. Okay. 
And uh, so then I went to A&M and that was like a whole nother tier. Then you're working with like, you know, the Stings and the U2s and the Eagles and all these really prestigious bands that are pretty classical. But, yeah. Um, and I learned a lot. I had no idea what an, I knew an SSL, but I, I had no idea how to run one because we had tried in A-ranges at, uh, at Cherokee and that's mm -hmm. all I knew. And Otari tape machines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a, I have an MCI tape machine, but yeah. Yeah, we you know, originally that's what we had first. MCIs. And then they replaced them with the Otaris. Mm -hmm. uh, Ampex, two tracks. And and um, then when I went to a and I was excited because I knew I'd learn an SSL and Neves. So they had the Neve, uh, 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 Montserrat Neve, which if you see the police demo or uh, video where they're dancing on a console <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> oh my god don't do that <laughs> yeah uh it was cool because I, I met george martin and um wow uh rupert all at the rupert same Neve. time Got he, si he signed the console i think i told you that, that he signed the console he they signed. both signed it wow. and there was a runner that came through one night and he was trying to clean the <laughs> he thought something oh no <laughs> oh jeez. so yeah, so I did that, and then I went freelance after a while, you know, when you're working at a place. And the good thing about a and is they really tried to groom you mm -hmm. to go out. Okay. Because that was the whole idea. They, you know, you could stay there forever, but they really wanted to groom you so that you would go out and get clients and bring those clients back to the studio. Ah, yes. Just kind of keep this going. And that's pretty much what happened with a lot of the guys. But sometimes your budgets wouldn't be able to afford those rooms because they were not cheap. Um, but they would give us deals too. So you would you would go to other studios around town, and then eventually you're just you're just out on your own doing your own thing, mm -hmm. which is really the best. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, more freedom. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Who who did you work with as a freelancer? Uh, uh Zach Brown bands, mm -hmm. Stevie Nicks, Cheryl wow. Crow, wow. Um, um, Stone Temple Pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of bands. Um, I actually had this open so I could remember. That's a good enough <laughs> yeah, list. <laughs> that, that's enough. See, Brian brings, like I said, some clout to this because because who am I? I do own a studio, but I have not uh, worked with the, such prestigious groups as these. Um, but the point is, you can have some faith that we know what we're talking about here about this recording and what goes on in the studio and and how to prepare, which is which is kind of what this is all about, bringing it back um, you know, to the audience that we're targeting. If you're wondering if this is the podcast for me, you know, if you are a musician, if you are a songwriter, singer-songwriter, if you're a member of a band, um, anyone who maybe is going to be going to a studio soon, if that's kind of on your agenda that you, you know, and you haven't done it before, or maybe you've done it but only a little bit and you're kind of uncertain still about some certain aspects of what goes on in the studio and how to prepare and how to you know not waste your money and waste your time um that's who we're really speaking to so engineers that that bit of talk that you had at the beginning there about you know tape machines and consoles that's probably the most <laughs> we're going to talk about any type thing technical like that this whole time probably um because it's not really going to be about that and engineers and and mixers um out there who you know are looking for podcasts where they're going to learn tips and tricks this probably isn't the podcast for you there's plenty of those and there's plenty of youtube channels and all that <laughs> however you still may find some things in here because there's things you could pass on to your clients 
um, you could certainly refer them to preppingforthestudio.com and the ebook that I wrote because I think it will help you um, have a smoother session if your clients are more prepared totally for the studio because I think we both experienced Brian, you know, what can happen when clients come in and they really were not prepared at all. Mm -hmm. And the, the session just kind of grinds to a halt and everyone starts getting a little upset and yeah, it's not really much fun. And you're paying money while all this is going down. Yeah, the client, whoever they are, and usually things are self-funded these days, mm -hmm. at least with clients I'm working with. So, you know, it's just every second is another dollar or whatever. So um, that might be an exaggeration in my case, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's money and, and there's only so much that you can spend on your recording. Um, but yes, thank you for the background there. It's very impressive who you've, who you've worked with. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know how it happened. I just was so much into this stuff that, you know, you just, yeah. You it was a good, going. good time that you landed in LA and mm -hmm. and you pursued it. And obviously you have capability, natural talent, and mm. you just made a whole career of it. And you're still going, you're still mixing and yeah. mostly mixing these days. Mostly mixing. Um, but I still record when, when asked. Yeah. Um, I go up to LA sometimes to do that. But uh, here even. you know, the funny thing is, is that as you were saying, I mean, even on big records where they're spending lots of money and then somebody else is paying for it, so much time is wasted. And and I remember seeing big records come in with big budgets and you're like, man, they could have made this for for $10,000. They didn't <laughs> need to spend, you know, $250,000. Uh -huh. And that's just recording costs. Yeah. That's not video. That's not all the other things. Mixing that, and mastering. And, yeah. So. Yes. So it's a good thing. everyone could have used this book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Back in the day. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't really see if there was other books out there like this uh, that I wrote and or podcasts like this. I don't think there's a whole bunch. I think there's a lot of for engineers and mixers who want to learn more about the craft. But I don't think there's a lot geared towards musicians who want to learn what goes on in the studio and how to prepare yeah. themselves. So I think this is filling a little bit of a, of a hole. Yeah. I hope it is at least. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of a good segue to, you know, what we, you know, in this first episode, we want to kind of cover just what is the, the big picture of the recording process. And then in, 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 ne in the next episodes, which I'm not even sure how many there will be, but um, we're going to, you know, kind of dive into each of those and, and try to keep it to, you know, an hour or less um, per episode. Um, but this time we're just going to go over kind of the big picture. Um, so really it starts before you even step in a studio. There's a whole process that you should be thinking about if you're not already of, of your songwriting and what we call pre-production. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah, cause what, what I've learned from people like you and, and reading about other engineers and, it's all about the song, you know, as far as the success yeah. of your record, the success of your career, mm -hmm. the song is the number one thing. Yeah. You can have a amazing song and it could be recorded kind of just all right and it could still do super well. Um, but you could have a, like a, eh, okay, not so great song, record it to 
the nth degree. It's like the best studio in the world, best engineer, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> if the song sucks, though, nobody's really going to care. <laughs> so true. <laughs> it might sound amazing, but, but yeah, the song, and you can think about it, you know, like all these older recordings, um, them going on since the 50s or whatever. I mean, some of them do sound amazing, but a lot of them, like, technically like if when you compare them mm -hmm. to a modern recording like they lack they mm -hmm. lack you know low end they they're there's like weird distortions and yeah distortion yeah, yeah all kinds of weird things going on sonically that are are cool but mm -hmm. you know they <laughs> i don't know if they were really intentional i think they were just more of an artifact of this was the technology of recording yeah they had at the time you know i think a lot of times too sometimes it you know they would only do a couple takes and they would go out and the whole band's playing together, so you had to kind of get it together quickly. Yeah. And maybe an engineer was like, the microphone's a little too hot or something's clipping. Yeah. But they go, ah, that's the take. Yeah, because <laughs> the songs were great and it didn't matter. And the performances were great, which is another thing we're going to talk about as we go along about the importance of performance. But um, but those songs, it doesn't matter that the recordings have some issues mm -hmm. you know the songs are so good that <laughs> no one cares mm -hmm. and people still listen to the, all those songs and love them um so there is something super duper important about about the song and about working that out and you want to work it out before you go in the studio because the worst time to be changing your arrangement or whatever is in the studio when you're trying to yeah record yeah, you're, you're, the clock is ticking. You know, I think I think sometimes it's okay to experiment a little bit, but you should have the foundation ready to go. I think that that would, but you know, not if somebody says in the back room like they have a clarity moment and I know it needs to go here. Eh, try sure. it, you know. Yeah, but, this isn't to say that you can't have spontaneous some spontaneous moments in the studio. Mm -hmm. But and you know, I think in general though, you should work out certain things with your song obviously the the structure of the song mm -hmm. you know verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus or is it something else um you should work out the tempo and you may you may find when you actually are there in the studio mm -hmm. it feels like it's sluggish or whatever and you can try it faster or vice versa but those are things that you could you could do before you get in the studio and you could actually do a demo which would be a, a good idea because mm -hmm. nowadays we have a lot of technology available to us that before like well, that four track that I was able to get my hands on, like that wasn't just like, you know, around, like I was lucky that my <laughs> friend's dad had one, like, but now like you literally maybe have GarageBand on your phone even. Yeah, totally. Um, so you can do a demo. Yeah. Uh, lyrics too. Lyrics. Yeah. Figuring out your lyrics. Um, you know, writing those out and going over them, um, refining them mm -hmm. um, as much as possible. Um, key of the song. Key of the song is huge. Yeah. Make sure that the singer can sing in that key, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> it's um, not too high. Yeah, not too high. That The notes are not, you know, unreachable. We do have auto-tune now and all that stuff. <laughs> But ideally, your singer should be able to hit the notes and it should be a key they're comfortable singing in. And sometimes certain instruments, like they can be difficult to play certain keys on. I'm not an expert on that, but I know that 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like string, like violins or horns, like sometimes there's certain keys that are like oh, really yeah. hard to play in or something. Yeah. So if you have those instruments, or if you're thinking about bringing in someone to play those things, um, you might want to think about that kind of stuff. But yeah, we're not going to go into too much detail about each section here, but that that's kind of the first step. And, and you might be working with a producer at this stage. Um, you know, you may not be. But mm-hmm. if you are working with a producer, then they here she can be you know very involved in this this stage of mm-hmm. songwriting and and figuring out all those things tempo and key and mm-hmm. um, thinking about even the feel of the song and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And now a word from our sponsor, Rarified Recording. Oh, that's me. I would be remiss if I didn't mention my studio, Rarified Recording, and the services I offer there. The studio itself was built from the ground up, from the masterful plans of Mr. West Show. So it sounds fantastic, both in the control room and the live room. A 32-channel Neve Genesis console holds center court and is complemented by a wide array of outboard gear, instruments, and microphones. Your music will be in good company. If you live in the San Diego area, just head on over to rarifiedrecording.com to learn more and book a tour. You can also hear examples of my tracking and mixing work. If you aren't lucky enough to live in San Diego, let me be the first to suggest the idea of a destination recording experience. San Diego is BBB approved. The Better Better Business Business Bureau? Bureau? No, beaches, burritos, and beer. Even if you're not a beach person, who's to complain with temperatures that are very often in the 70s? Even the winter months are averaging in the mid-60s. And being relatively dry, rain is unlikely to get in your way. The studio is very centrally located, and you can get to just about anywhere in the area in 15 to 20 minutes. Even Mexico. And while burritos are technically not a food you find in Mexico itself, San Diego has taken the concept to blissful culinary heights. You can't go hardly 100 yards here without running into a little taco shop that will be 10 times better than whatever options you have in your town. If Mexican isn't your thing, no worries. There are tons of great restaurants in the area, including a barbecue place three blocks away that rivals anything I've tried in Texas. And adjacent to it is one of over 150 craft breweries in San Diego. If you love beer, we gotcha. The West Coast IPA style is a specialty here, but we've got brewers doing all kinds of beers, and several have tasting rooms in walking distance. Did I mention that accommodations are available? So head on over to rarifiedrecording.com and reach out for a quote today. That's R-A-R-E-F-I-E-D recording.com. And now back to the episode. But yeah. That's that's the first step, and then and then the next step would be would be what we call tracking or recording, um, which is when you actually go in the studio and get the kind of the raw material, mm. recording all the different tracks, the all different instruments. There's many ways to do that. You can do it all together. You can do it piecemeal, one thing at a time, mm-hmm. or you can do a combination, like some stuff together and some stuff that's what's called overdubbed. Um, we're going to assume that you don't know a lot of things. You may, this may be like, oh yeah, I know what overdub is, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for those who don't, it's, it's when you've recorded one thing and then you kind of layer on top of it, you're listening to it, uh, listening to what you've already done and then adding another track to it. That's an mm. overdub. What about the part of being prepared for the studio? Well, Making yeah, sure. that is definitely something we're going to be going into a lot okay. more. Yeah. yeah. I'm just trying to give people the, 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 50,000 foot view of the process gotcha. on this one. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So there's a whole, there's a, certainly a whole bunch of stuff that 
we're going to be talking about as far as you know making sure your instruments are ready for the studio and mm-hmm. making sure you're practiced and all that kind of stuff before you get to the studio itself but yeah in the big picture this whole recording stage is it's you know it's more about capturing these performances right and performance is so key that was we kind of touched on it for a second ago but i mean wouldn't you say brian like, yeah the song is number one and performance is like number two yeah yeah and you know i think another thing is depending on your your uh, experience with being in a studio if you rehearse a lot and be prepared you're going to be around people where you have to perform and sing so mm-hmm. it might be a little scary a little you know, might be intimidated but yeah it's a great uh stage of the process you know and when you hear yourself come back through the speakers the first time in a studio it could be you you might hear some things you can improve on which is a good thing yes but i know what you're saying it, it's, i call it red light syndrome yeah right <laughs> <laughs> so the like if there's a recording light that says recording and it's red which i do have in my studio but it's i kind of hid it away somewhere so you don't have to like stare at it <laughs> uh, it's more for people who are walking through the doors so they know that you're you know you might be interrupting something um but yeah the red light syndrome where everything was cool until you knew that you were actually recording and then suddenly you just like, ah. And you have these strangers looking at you. Yes, and people are looking at you, the engineers looking at you, your bandmates are, there's a lot on the line in a sense. Like this is, this is going to be the definitive version of the song, you know? And that one that everyone's gonna listen to over and over, yourself included. Um, and so there's a lot of desire to get it right and so it's natural to be nervous especially mm-hmm. if it's your first time um probably some artists never totally get over that um yeah i don't yeah it's like stage fright in a sense you know I mean, mm-hmm. it's part of the game yeah but that's something that we'll we'll kind of talk about more i think as we get into those sections um you know some things you could do to work through that and yeah I liked what you said in your book about that. It's mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's definitely some techniques that you could use or just things to know. You know, for instance, like, yes, you're making a record, but this is not brain surgery, for instance. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Where no one's no one's life is on the line. Um, you can make a mistake and it's okay. Just keep do it going. Again. Yeah. You just keep going and come back to it. There's many ways to fix the mistakes in the studio. You can do what's called a punch in, which is where you kind of are listening to what you just did and then you get to that moment where you made a mistake and the engineer is able to kind of just start recording right then and you just roll over and fix that mistake and there's there's a lot of ways to do it or you can just do you know multiple takes from top, the top of the song and mm-hmm. then the engineer can actually comp what's called comping the uh whatever it is the vocal or the performance um and and just use the moments that mm-hmm. are the best mm-hmm. um, which is a great way to do it also. So yeah, we'll get more and more into all this stuff. It's funny, people put a little bit too much pressure on themselves sometimes. They think they have to do it in two or three takes, or they think that the take has to be a full take in order to use it. Mm-hmm. But all the pros I've ever worked with comping a vocal is common. Yeah, And sometimes they'll comp it to several days in a row t- until they really nail it. Mm-hmm. It's just part of it. Yeah, I think there's there's a myth that the the best performing performances performers rather like are so good that they it's just one take and it's done. And there's a few that I've heard of that mm-hmm. were like that. 
Frank. But, <laughs> yeah, probably Frank Sinatra. Yeah. It's a live orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a few that could do that, but I think a lot of them, it's a lot of takes and a lot of comping. Definitely. And so it wasn't just one perfect performance. Yeah, definitely. You, yeah, so you don't have to feel bad that you're not uh, attaining that, because except for a few exceptions, it's mostly a comping situation. Yeah. But yeah, so recording, it also is, you gotta remember, you're capturing all this raw material, and the next step is mixing. So you're gonna hear things start to come together in the recording process, and, and a lot of engineers are trying to make it start to sound like a record mm-hmm. at the beginning. At least that's, a, you know, I think a lot of the better engineers are able to do that, where mm-hmm. they're capturing sounds that are, are with with the final product in mind, you know, and and so, but at the same time, it's it you're gonna maybe do some rough mixes at, in the recording stage, mm-hmm. but what you're gonna be hearing is still unpolished per se, um, and that's fine. That's just the the important part of tracking is to gather this kind of raw material, mm-hmm. um, and and not that it's all perfect just yet. But and, yeah, and the rough mixes to just sort of like assess what you have. Yes. To make sure you're happy with it. And if you need to improve something, because mm-hmm. sometimes you'll hear things outside the studio you don't hear in the studio. Yes. For me anyway, I know that it's true. Yeah, well, especially with, you know, taking it a, a day later or whatever, and you've had some time to process. But I mean, that's that's a big part of the the point of rough mixes, I guess, is it's mm-hmm. it's something that you can digest later and decide whether you have everything you need mm-hmm. um, before you eventually move on to the mixing stage. Because ideally, you you once you're in mixing, you're not going back and then recording some new stuff. <laughs> yeah. It can't happen. But um, you want to be you want to make sure you have everything that you wanted, mm-hmm. all the different instruments. Because you might decide, like, oh, you know, it'd be great if there was piano at this part, you know, and you didn't know, didn't really think of that uh, while you were writing the song. But now that you're hearing it, uh, wow, piano would be great there. So you know, mm-hmm. you could you could do that um, before you get to the mixing stage, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that does happen. Like in my experience, like you have a song and you start recording it, and then you start to hear things that you didn't really think mm-hmm. of before because for some reason hearing it back as a recording is different than just playing it mm-hmm. and i think that's why doing demos can help um, mm-hmm. because that you get that experience kind of even before you're in the studio and then you might be more prepared yeah with what you want to record you can kind of hear if everything's working together and yes um, yeah, yeah we'll be talking more in detail i think in the next episode probably about arrangement and which is part of that that step zero that before you even step in the studio, the songwriting, mm-hmm. starting to think about how things work together, um, because it's very easy for for people to kind of create parts that step on each other and and yeah. make it so you can't really uh, appreciate each yeah, of them. Totally, arrangement is is kind of a a huge thing that people don't think about as much yeah. as they probably should. Yeah. So yes, recording all this raw material is captured rough mixes are generated and then you move on to the next step which is mixing and mixing is where you take this what we usually call multi-track recording because there's there'll be 
in whatever program nowadays it's usually a program but it could be a tape tape you know tape recording still potentially um you have all these different tracks it could be you know even parts of a drum kit could be you know different tracks kick drum snare drum etc then you could have you know multiple guitar tracks and bass track and vocal tracks and background vocals and piano and whatever is on mm -hmm. your song mm -hmm. they're all different tracks and they need to be combined and they need to be mixed um so that's the process of um you know the the balance which is just the, the volume of each of those tracks and how you know how they relate to each other um, and how they change maybe over time and and the panning which is since most of what we listen to still is stereo um, that's the, the two speakers the left and the right and where where you put something in the mix um, whether it's hard left hard right it's in the center or somewhere in between maybe it moves who knows mm -hmm. and Brian you've actually mixed probably some stuff in surround yeah some television stuff and Atmos or, now is Atmos. becoming uh, a big deal yeah, so that's starting to become a thing, which maybe you'll be interested in doing. I haven't done it myself at all, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the process of getting that going. The Amos? Yeah. Wow. So yeah. you're going to put some speakers on your ceiling? Uh, not sure yet how I'm going to do it. Yeah. In several ways. Mm -hmm. Still, It's still pretty new, and I know a lot of guys are doing it, and my friend that I was talking to over the weekend, he's starting to do it. And mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's in the works. Yeah. So yeah, but I'm gonna, we're probably mostly gonna focus on stereo in our discussions, um, just because that's still the most common type of, you know, release that people are doing, um, at least for, for music. Yeah. Obviously film is usually done in some sort of surround format, but, um, so yeah, mixing is, you know, the levels, the panning, equalization could be part of it, basically changing, you know, what frequencies are maybe accentuated or deaccentuated in a particular track? Um, effects, mm -hmm. reverb, delay. Yeah. What else do you use? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> you know it's funny. I was just thinking of the team, the team players in the band, or wh uh -huh. whatever it is. And if you've selected an engineer that you feel good with, and you know, just everybody has their job. And yes. you got to give them their space to do that, like the guitar player. And, yeah. You know, you don't want to be standing over your shoulder saying, no, play it like here. You let him work it out. Same thing with the mixer. Yeah. You let him work it out and see where he takes it. And Yeah. We're going to, when we get into mixing but, more, we're going to talk about like attended versus unattended mixing. Because I do all my work unattended because I want to be able to have that time to mm -hmm. just sort of work it out. And then uh, let the artist then hear that, mm -hmm. make comments. We do revision, um, but that is part of the process. Is the revision process right? Mm -hmm. Is you're going to get this mix from your mixer, and you're going to have a chance to weigh in. You know, whether if you were there for part of the mixing, then you will have done that, I suppose, at, in real time. But even then, there'll be uh, some time to digest what the mix is and listen to it on different systems and. That's definitely part of something we're going to talk about, how to listen, how to give revision notes. Um, but uh, yeah, you're going to have this chance to kind of do a revision or two or three, or it depends on the mixer and how many they allow and <laughs> what the costs are. You know, it, it varies, mm -hmm. but that is part of the process of mixing. So there'll be a chance for you to weigh in and, and uh, make sure it's what you want. Because at the end of the day, like this is your music mm -hmm. and you should be in control 
of what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. So um, you should you should keep working through that uh, process with whoever you're working with to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And if someone, I think if someone's is kind of stepping on it and saying, no, you don't know what you're doing and I know better, like maybe they're not the right person for you. Mm -hmm. then. Um, yeah, it's important having the right people that you feel comfortable with and, and sort of maybe not see, be like-minded, but sort of for the project or the song, maybe in the same area, you know? Yeah. There has to be a kind of a mutual respect. Yeah. With, for each other. And, um, yeah, we're definitely going to talk more about how to select an engineer, how to select a mixing engineer. And then the next step, which is mastering. Um, so once you're finalized your mix and, um, you're very happy with it, there's, there's one more step in the process. Which <laughs> you could skip, but, um, we generally don't it's it's called mastering it's kind of changed over the years of what that means um, but basically um, another engineer and perhaps this the mix engineer as well it, these days that's more and more common the mixer will also master the the record but um, it's kind of like a, a sweetening process I I say usually like it's you take they work with just the stereo mix if we're, if we're ignoring surround sound for now <laughs> um, they take the stereo mix and he or she listens to it kind of with a fresh perspective and perhaps make some broad adjustments to the equalization of the track. Maybe it needs a little more low, a little more highs, or maybe there's certain frequencies that are just, there's too much of them in there. They need to bring them down. Um, there's a whole range of things like that, that they may need to just kind of s subtly adjust. Um, or maybe drastically just if the mixer didn't know what they were doing or <laughs> had an issue with their room. And yeah, you hope up, it's kind of close. <laughs> yeah. What I always tell people is the better the mix, the less you'll hear a change in the master. Mm -hmm. Because a really good mix might not really need anything in the mm -hmm. mastering stage. That's true. Yeah. But the other thing the mastering generally does is it will make your recording a little louder most of the time. Um, just because the mixer is not really focused on like the overall loudness of the record per se. Mm -hmm. Um, they're just kind of doing their thing. And, and then there is sometimes a need to, to get it up to a certain level. That's similar to a lot of other recordings that are being released at this mm -hmm. time, which has changed over the years. And there's this whole thing called the loudness wars that happened where people just kept trying to push the records yeah. louder and louder. There's also, I mean, I, I, there's different formats that you may need for certain releases. True. If you go into iTunes, sometimes they may need mastered for iTunes, which is something mastering guys can do. Yeah. Or if you, they'll probably send your anything that's going to be streamed a lower level. Yeah. It's, streaming has kind of, they normalize everything to a certain level. So yeah. if your recording is really, really loud, they're actually going to just going to lower the level. I don't, some of them may raise the level of a recording that's low, but it, sometimes they just don't touch it at all in that case. Mm -hmm. But they do definitely, I think most of them pull down the level of something that's that's really loud. Mm -hmm. um, so there's kind of a sweet spot where one could master their your record to for streaming where it wouldn't be touched at all. But I've heard different engineer, mastering engineers talk about this in different ways of mm -hmm. basically like, I don't care to like, yeah, make it a certain loudness or but loud basically adjusting the loudness is usually part of the mastering process mm -hmm. and yeah if you're going to vinyl 
like you you may actually need a separate master for the vinyl because vinyl is like a physical medium with a kind of certain restrictions to it like mm -hmm. you can't put uh, too much low end on vinyl yeah. for instance because the the needle will literally like jump out of the groove <laughs> <laughs> so much for your sub yeah <laughs> and you can't put too much high end on it either because that can cause the needle to break with their as their the not your needle at home but the the needle that's cutting the record can actually be just destroyed if it's trying to put too much high end onto the the that's record crazy. yeah so there's certain limitations to vinyl. So you might, if you're going to vinyl, you're probably going to need like a, a separate master for that and want to work with someone who's experienced with mastering for vinyl. Um, but yeah, there's just kind of this process usually of EQ and, and, and loudness, which is using tools like compressors and limiters. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe some other secret sauce mm -hmm. uh, that the mastering engineer has to enhance Mm -hmm. the record a little bit further some mm -hmm. harmonic distortion or something you know mm -hmm. running it through certain pieces of gear or certain plugins or whatever it is to give that that final presentation to your song mm -hmm. anything else you can say generally about mastering at this no. point no that's pretty much it um yeah so that's kind of the whole process except for of course releasing your song which is not going to be part of this podcast. Right. <laughs> we don't know much about that. At least I don't. Um, yeah. You, and the book stops there too. Usually pick your service. Yeah. There's always CD baby or exactly. distro kid or. Yeah. That's how it goes these days. Usually is there's some sort of service that kind of puts your music everywhere. Mm -hmm. All these different streaming services and what have you. But yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> after you're done with all the recording steps um but yeah that's that's basically all we wanted to talk about i think in this first episode is this yeah. big big picture overview of recording process introducing ourselves and what this podcast is all about cool and um i hope you guys enjoyed it and you can subscribe to this podcast and we'll be coming out with more and more episodes as time goes on and go through in more detail each of those steps and how to, how you're going to prepare yourself for them and what you're going to be looking to do, how to build your team. And, uh, it's important. Know, yeah. A lot of, you know, tips that are going to help you avoid some pitfalls, mm -hmm. um, and not waste your time. And, um, I think it, it's going to be potentially really useful for, for a lot of people who, are new to the studio or like i said maybe they've you've done a little bit of studio work but you still want to learn more so you can be more efficient in the studio and be yeah. better prepared i think it'll totally help you focus on the important parts and not get caught up in you know rabbit holes mm -hmm. yeah there's certain areas that yeah you could go down that don't matter and, and whereas you know yeah the most important things like we've already mentioned like the song and the performance like you got to remember those things you got to make make sure you give yourself space to give a good performance for mm -hmm. instance when you're when you're in there for the tracking sessions so you don't want to be frazzled and and you don't want to be like oh man oof, we wasted all this time and now we only have 30 minutes you know <laughs> and no one wants to be in that situation but it does happen where you're just 
you're pushed to that point because you had all these issues with your guitar amp and your mm -hmm. you know there's all these things that you could you could work out before you step in the studio um, yeah and make everything super smooth yeah and i think it I mean, this is maybe something we'll talk about mm -hmm. later, but, you know, and not to rely on the studio personnel to make everything work. You know, if you don't have a dialed in guitar sound, that's uh, not his job. You should, uh, you know, if you're looking for certain sounds, yeah, try to find it yourself. Yeah, it starts at the source. That's something we will talk about for sure. Is, um, the best place to get things right is at the instrument or mm -hmm. the amplifier itself versus being like trying to, tell the engineer can you turn this crappy sound and this other yeah. sound you know can you get a sound on my guitar yeah so there's a lot you can do on your own to you know really make it how you want it which is ideally you know th that's what you're looking for is you have probably something in your head of what you're envisioning and and you want the final product to be close to that or exactly that or maybe even better than that and if you work with the right people, they, they can help you get there and make it better. But it does start with you yeah. um, and and having that vision or working with a producer who helps you with that vision. Mm -hmm. um, in your pre-production. In the pre-production stage, that's a big part of what you can be done is kind of putting together this vision. Yeah, so you're not trying to get a sound for an hour in the studio mm -hmm. that you could have set up and had ready to go. Yeah, You know, totally. So that's it for episode one of Prepping for the Studio. Thank you for listening. Thank we'll you. be back. Awesome. Thanks. That's our show for today, folks. Thanks so much for listening to Prepping for the Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcast from. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. Episode info and my ebook, A Musician's Guide to the Recording Studio, are available at preppingforthestudio.com. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out there. Prepping for the Studio was recorded and edited at Rarified Recording by me, Roy Silverstein. Theme music written by myself and Ariel Levine. Performed and recorded by Ariel Levine. Many thanks to my co-host, Brian Schubel, and you. Best of luck to you and your musical endeavors. And remember, as Alexander Graham Bell once said, before anything else, preparation is the key to success. We'll see you next time. <laughs>